Good evening. It's very nice to be here. Um, there was a bit of a diary clash because um, there's another dinner in another part of town given by the RIBA, um, the Sterling Prize uh, announcement. But um, I think this room is going to change the world more than those people over there. Uh, in case anyone was wondering, um, Caruso Sinjin won the Sterling Prize with their Newport Street Gallery, so that's a very good result. Um, uh, I'm here, I think, well, I wrote a book called Slowburn City about London, um, in which I kind of say that um, urban design and planning is terribly important. So I think that's why I'm here. And I'm a bit worried because I'm not really going to say anything that you disagree with, I think. Um, but it's about, um, and the, the book was really um, provoked, inspired by, firstly, my fascination, love of the city, um, but also by a feeling that in the last 10, 20 years, it's become a more and more extraordinary place, both for better and, and for worse. And it's also extraordinary in a way that kind of exemplifies the pressures that cities are feeling all over the world. Um, but they happen in a particular way in London because it is also a historic city. So you, have, you see the sort of things that, that happen in, in Shanghai and Dubai also happen in London, but they take on, on different forms. Um, and what really kind of emerged as the big theme was the interplay of uh, private uh, government and public in the sense of people, communities. Um, and there's a view of London that it is made by trade, that it's built by um, the great estates, um, property developers, businesses, um, the city, and that that's its strength and that makes it kind of flexible and adaptable. And there's some truth in that, but it's less than half the story. Uh, because London has also been made by extraordinary interventions, both by government and by communities. Um, and there tends to be, roughly speaking, a bit of a pattern, which is that um, business, the private sector, is allowed to do its thing, to create wealth, opportunity, growth, excitement, um, and it goes off and does that until it reaches a point where it generates some kind of crisis that might express itself and through housing or environmental issues. Um, I'm talking about things like um, the Great Stink in the 19th century, which, promote, which eventually led to Bazalgette's sewage works, which interestingly was not just a work of engineering, but required the reconfiguration of the politics of London. It required the creation of the Metropolitan Board of Works um, as the first kind of Lond effective London-wide authority, which became the LCC, which became the GLC. Um, I'm talking about things like the Clean Air Act, uh, London's role in inventing council housing, um, the invention of the Green Belt, um, the Abercrombie Plan and the New Towns that came out of it. Um, and I'm also talking about popular actions, like the quite extraordinary 19th century movement to preserve the commons. Um, 
which, which I'm sure most of you know, arose out of the threat to places like Hampstead Heath, Epping Forest, but also less celebrated pieces of, of common green space all over the city, which were threatened by development. And a kind of somewhat motley group of people, which included the philosopher John Stuart Mill, um, the bookseller W.H. Smith, and people who made their living from lopping trees and selling them for firewood, uh, got together and campaigned to preserve the commons on the somewhat tenuous uh, laws of common, um, common land, which, which kind of went back centuries and really to do with grazing animals and gathering um, materials for thatching roofs and, and lighting fires and so on. Um, and landowners made the kind of rather simple argument that these laws uh, were obsolete, so they should no longer apply. And it's not such a bad argument in itself. Um, but by and large, the campaigners, after a 50-year battle, won. And without any of these things, London would not be the city it is now. It would not be the world-class city that people like to call it. Um, it would not be a city of the incredibly high land values that it has. Um, but, but all these initiatives were opposed in their time as being bad for business, bad for the city, bad for property rights, people's freedom to do what they wanted um, with, with what they own. Another important point is that these interventions are, they were big, they were ambitious, um, they were also unprecedented. They were things that had to be invented. They weren't taken from somewhere else, um, by and large, and, and copied in London. And having been invented, they became models for other cities, as well as being part of what people in London take for granted as, as just a natural part of the city. Um, if we look at where we are now, I would say we're at the kind of top of another cycle. We've, we've been through a period of 30 years or so where the idea that the market can build the city has been preeminent. Um, with results that have been very productive in many ways. Um, you know, the city is growing, the city is very prosperous, um, but it is also causing some very obvious stresses. And those stresses, I believe, are kind of endangering what's good about the city. Um, the most obvious arena is, is housing, the price of housing, the availability of housing, um, but also there's what goes with that. There's the, the, the sort of the tendency of London to disaggregate. Um, a very positive quality of the city is its kind of openness, availability, the, the feeling that all of the city uh, sort of morally belongs to everyone, even if it, that's literally not true. Um, the feeling that people of different backgrounds, different income levels can live reasonably close to each other. That's something that is slowly being emptied out. Um, the, the sort of power of residential property is also tending to squeeze out the kind of marginal spaces of business and creativity 
uh, the kind of places where artists might start a studio, where a small business might start up, and so on. Um, and we're seeing other pressures like uh, the pressures on the skyline, tall buildings. Um, we can have a discussion about good and bad tall buildings, but that's definitely a kind of very radical change to the city. Um, and you'll be pleased to know that I think urban design and, and planning are critical to all of this. Because really, uh, very often it's the difference between a good and a bad solution to something. If we're talking about housing numbers, where do we put new housing? We all know what all the different ideas are. Um, you can densify suburbs, you can build towers, you can build on brownfield land, you might even build on the green belt very carefully and respectfully. Um, you might um, densify existing sort of medium density zones. Um, all these things are possible, but the, the difference between them being successful and not successful is very often to do with design and planning. So um, building on the green belt can be sprawl or it can be a garden city. Uh, building a tower can be an eyesore or it can be a landmark. Um, and, and so on. At the same time, I think there are challenges to planners and urban designers because we're seeing different kinds of um, problems emerging, problems that didn't really exist before. Um, I was in Korea recently where they were kind of absolutely amazed that we don't have floor area ratios the way they do and that in theory there's a kind of infinite amount of space you can put on land. Um, and so I had to explain how we managed. And I kind of realized that, okay, so we have conservation areas and historic buildings and things like that, which, which means that issues of, of density and scale and height are dealt with as a, as a kind of conservation aesthetic issue. But an issue that's now emerging is what happens when people want to build towers in kind of outer suburbs, which are not conservation areas, where there's not a kind of strong planning framework for them. And of course they're just going up. So, so the issue of having a 30, 40 storey building at the end of a three or four storey street is quite a new one. Um, and my feeling is that it's not enough just to say you can't build towers, because clearly that, that advice is being ignored anyway. Um, but I think it requires very smart thinking about how you make these transitions of scale and how you really ensure that a tall building contributes to its surroundings rather than detracting from it, which is too often the case. Um, so I think there's a kind of amazing challenge to, to everybody involved. As we all know, London's population is increasing hugely. As far as we know, it will continue to increase. To, to increase, uh, it was 6.7 million in the mid-80s, it's supposed to be going to 10 million in the 2030s, that's 50% more people in a kind of generation and a half within the boundary given by the Greenbelt, that's a really phenomenal transformation. And I'm not really seeing 
anyone in government, in London government, national government, really taking on board the scale of that challenge. But that is a planning challenge. Um, it may seem like a very inauspicious time to be saying these things. Um, we've heard the attacks on experts um, earlier this year. Um, there's, there have been cuts in local authorities, uh, which reduced rather increased their ability to plan things. Um, there's not a kind of, doesn't seem to be a great belief out there in, in any proactive action by public authorities. It seems to be more about being sort of reactive and passive. Um, but um, something I also found from, from writing the book is that it can take a really long time to change things. It took about 20 or 30 years of people to point out um, that the Thames was full of sewage and this was unpleasant and dangerous. Um, and indeed solutions being proposed that were quite like the, the solutions that were eventually implemented. It took all that time um, before anything even started to happen. Um, I, I'd like to be encouraged by the front page of the Telegraph. It's not every day this happens, but apparently Theresa May said it's time to remember the good that government can do. Um, so I think we do need a kind of belief in what public authorities can intelligently do. Um, um, but I think if, you know, everyone here, in here has potentially a role to play, including people not from London and working out solutions in your own cities. Um, and the potential is there for London to invent ways of dealing with, with these challenges that cities around the world are facing in a way that it can actually, again, lead um, and set an example. And um, I'm not sure it's going to happen quickly, but uh, I don't think it's impossible to imagine it will happen over time. Thank you.